Hi, I'm Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. I was just honored as the first woman to win the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement, so I've known for decades about challenging the norm. This month, In Conversation with Leslie Visser, we'll take a deeper look into Title IX, the 37 words that changed society. Fifty years ago, on June 23, 1972, the passage of Title IX radically altered sports in this country, ensuring that women would no longer be discriminated against in any federally funded educational program. In the early 1970s, I was on a high school basketball team where only two of us, called Rovers, could cross half court. Yes, only two of the then six players could cross half court. It was thought that too much exertion would damage a young girl's heart. By the mid-70s, I both marched for and wrote about Title IX. Ironically, the word sports does not appear anywhere in the amendment, but the landmark legislation recognized that gender equity in education was a civil right, and it, of course, included sports. This month on In Conversation, we'll hear from some of the beneficiaries, now icons, of Title IX. People like Cheryl Miller, Julie Foudy, Dominique Dawes, Val Ackerman, and Jessica Mendoza. I'm old friends with all of them. I hope you'll join us. When is a drag bunt never a drag? When it's explained by Jessica Mendoza, the iconic former softball player turned sportscaster. She'll observe your stance, your hand placement, and your mechanics. And as an Olympic gold medalist turned trailblazer in the broadcast booth, she will not be pleased if you do not give maximum effort. And besides that, she's one of my favorite things, a lefty. Hello, Jessica. Thank you for joining me. Absolutely. I'm so excited. I'm in the presence of greatness. And honestly, just to be able to be around you is, is, my, is my biggest amazing thing that I could do this day. You know, thank you. I mean, I don't know about that, but uh, let's for you. You played at Stanford. You're an Olympian. You called a major league no hitter for crying out loud. Where does calling the Women's World Series rank for you? I mean, it's by far at the top because it's in my heart. It's close to home. I mean, I got to play here at the Women's College World Series. So really to be able to elevate these women, you know, to see them become stars. I mean, I mean, my son, my son's here. He showed up yesterday with a Jocelyn Allo home run queen t-shirt. And I'm like, where did you get that? He's like, I wanted to buy it. I'm hoping she'll autograph it. And you know, he's eight years old and I'm just sitting here thinking, you know, we've been able to do this every year, but showcase these women on this stage and they become superstars right in front of our eyes. And, you know, obviously players like Jocelyn Allo has been a star for quite some time, but there's no stage like this stage. And it, it really is my favorite thing of anything I can do because it's elevating women and in a sport that I was able to play. Is there any difference um, either when you're calling a game or what you've noted, is there any difference in strategy or anything between softball and baseball? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few things that are, obviously there's a ton of similarities. One of the biggest things that jumps out to me is, is kind of the base stealing strategy because baseball has a lead off and you're allowed to leave at a different time. And a lot of your stealing is based on the pitcher, not so much the catcher, whereas in softball, you can't leave the bag until the pitcher releases the ball. So there, there's a little bit of like, I've had to understand that strategy of like the stealing component. 
and you know, the pitching is different from like the obvious, like people that watch it are like, well, of course, baseball's throwing overhand, softball's underhand, but it's actually incredibly similar when you think about sequencing strategy, the, the concepts are the same. You're trying to jam up a hitter, not, you know, miss barrels off time with off-speed pitches. So all of that is pretty similar. Um, it's just kind of understanding maybe like, you know, the curveball in baseball is a little different from softball. So like pitch names, um, and what they mean. So like a curveball in softball is actually the hardest pitch you can throw, whereas a curveball in baseball comes over the top. It's the slowest pitch you can throw, you know, outside of like a, you know, EFIS or something crazy, but, um, so stuff like that. But honestly, Leslie, it's, it's amazing how similar it is. I was coached by a baseball coach my entire life. My dad was a, a, a college baseball coach and he was my coach. My coach at Stanford was a baseball guy. My Olympic coach was a baseball guy. So, um, you know, when we have women that cross into baseball, it's always seen as like, oh my gosh, would she softball? And my whole life, it was always okay for the baseball dudes to come over and do a great job, you know, coaching women and crossing that line, so to speak, but no one ever was like, wait, you're a baseball guy. Why would you ever, you know, think, you know, about softball? I always used to use, you know, people would say the Boston Globe made me the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat. And um, everyone was like that. Well, you know, how could she possibly recognize a safety blitz? And I used to say, you know, uh, men weren't born with the ability, the genetic ability to see what was happening in a 4-3 or a 3-4 defense. They learned it. They had a passion for it just like we did. Or like you say, the men, as you know, many men uh, coached women's basketball for years. So um, it's crazy discussion to have on that side. Um, Tell me about you. You mentioned a little bit about growing up, but uh, you know, you were kind of the star wherever you were. You were, I think the LA times named you the high school player of the year. Then you were the PAC 12 newcomer of the year. Did you enjoy those expectations or how did they affect you? It's funny because I felt like, I don't know, I didn't really feel a lot of expectation because I always felt like when I did that, no one expected it. (laughs) So, you know, it was, you know, even growing up, you know, like in high school, I was always the skinny little, like no one really thought of me or maybe honestly, I didn't think a ton of myself early on too. So then you don't really notice when other people notice. So I always had very low expectations. And even though I worked really hard and um, wanted to be the best, I never really saw that in my own reflection. I never really looked and was like, oh, wow, like I'm really doing a whole lot. So I think when awards came or things came, it was unexpected. And I never felt that pressure because I, I never really saw myself that way. Um, it took me a long time to really get that confidence of like owning, like I'm a really great softball player and I'm going to go out and kick everyone's tail. (laughs) Um, that took a long time. Um, and I felt like it was good early on because I was definitely like humbled, um, very often. And, you know, it challenged me to work harder in the weight room in on the field, practice all the things because I didn't see the greatness that was within. Um, but I definitely felt like once I got to the Olympic level, that I needed to also kind of own. You you had every single honor and stat to back yourself up. And, you know, I I actually think that's that's female because, you know, most guys, they'd hit one home run in high school and think, oh, I'm going to the Dodgers. It's it's, I think it's often a female uh, component to say, oh, do I deserve this? Am I this good? Yes. No, and I think it drives you. And I I do, you know, I think there's a balance. What I've learned, I always have, you know, there's a quote out there that's practice 
like you're the worst player on the field, but play like you're the best. I think when you are in that training mode, it's good to have that humility and to understand that you aren't as good or maybe lack the confidence. I do think that that's good for you. Um, but I do think there needs to be a time when that green light goes on and you cross the field on game day and you know, all that training, all that work has made you the best player on the field that day and to really own that. And I think having that balance is ultimately what makes the best players. I mean, even men's sports, I mean, you know, this in covering so many great athletes, some of the best athletes I've ever been around are the most insecure. And it's interesting because I think it's been great for them because it's pushed them to work hard and never be like, Oh, I'm really good. But that's also like a grind mentally of them never ever giving themselves that like, okay, like I I'm good. I can, I can do this. They're constantly doubting themselves. Who was, uh, who'd you pretend to be in the backyard? Was there a a left-handed hitter that you love? Yeah. Um, Brett Butler actually was, um, the Dodgers. And it's funny because I grew up in the eighties and with, you know, I was a huge Dodger fan and went to all their games and you're talking about Fernando Mania and Oral Hershiser and Kurt Gibson and all the big names. And so when I tell people my favorite player was Brett Butler, it's always <laughs> like, wait, who? Like, but he had, you know, great bat to ball skills. He was a grinder. He didn't strike out a lot, like put the ball in play. Like, you know, he was just that player that I related to mo- most. I wasn't thinking about home runs or dominance for me. It was about like the good skill players. And Brett was that. Could you imagine if you came here from another planet and you saw Valenzuela? Like, you know, he had about five different things going on, right? He would, you know, he'd look around, jerk his back. It was like, I mean, as a kid, was he just fun to watch for you? Or were you saying, what is going on? (laughs) I mean, at the time, I never, I, I mean, I was like five, six years old. And I remember watching him more so in the lens of being a Mendoza and being Mexican American. And that was really my introduction to Fernando was not his pitching style, but very much what he represented for our community and my dad. Um, so that, that was really, I mean, just, I remember we'd have the Mexican flag and we'd wear hats and like, there was such a pride at Dodger stadium that never really existed before. And, and, and you can't not go to a Dodger game now and feel that Hispanic population come out in full force. And it has everything to do with Fernando and what he did in the eighties. So that's what I saw is I saw um, a man born and raised in Mexico um, out there doing amazing things and honestly bringing together a community that was very much divided up until that point and really ultimately making, you know, Dodger nation, a uh, very much a Hispanic part of, of what the fandom is at Dodger stadium. Of course, you know, this is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Your podcast will actually run on the day of the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which is so exciting. So tell me the impact it had on your life. I mean, all of our lives, right? I I look back to Leslie, I think the biggest thing that, you know, I didn't actually know this until later, but 37 words exist in Title IX. And it's one word, activity, that was added later. Um, I think it was Senator Birch by that added in. So it was an educational, strictly educational amendment, which I mean, it still is based in education. But what Title IX is known for that we know it for is sports. But it was a late ad. So this sure. was an educational amendment that never would have affected sports. And all of a sudden it was decided, let's add the word activity to make sure 
that on the playing field, these equalities that we're asking for in education are also, you know, happening in our in our education system. So it's crazy to me to think that <laughs> had that not been added, you know, we would not have had the same opportunities. Of course, I'm hoping by now, like we would have some sort of equality, but it was Title IX that really pushed forward. This is right and this is wrong. If you want funding, this is what you need to have. So I think about for myself getting a full scholarship to Stanford University. Never would have been able to afford that kind of education, honestly, any type of education. Um, so the fact that playing sports and doing well in school was able to get me an education at Stanford for free um, because of Title IX, because of the opportunities that it brought. And really, Leslie, that opened up every door. As much as softball led to so much of what I did, it was really my education at Stanford that opened my mind um, to introduce me to people and professors and really the world in a way that has never left me and is still a huge part of who I am today. Yeah, I think actually you are a shining beacon of what people were hoping with that amendment. And like you say, you know, the word sports is not in the 37 words. It's just that's how it was applied. I, I do feel now, as, as you know, the 96 games, you know, were the fruition of Title IX. But then tell me by 2004, by your Olympic gold medal, uh, where did you feel softball was and what kind of a statement was that? Yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a statement of dominance. I mean, we we were a really good team um, and it showed really honestly what the U.S. was doing with their female sports. Um, and so even though it was a part of me that was like, OK, globally, how do we get Title IX to like get and spread? That's that's really what I felt, Leslie, because there was such a disparity of what we had done and how we had grown up and meeting athletes. And honestly, a lot of female athletes from all over the world at the Olympic games, how very little rights and opportunities they had coming from other countries, growing up in different, you know, governments and, and really what was prioritized. And it, it really made me sad to be honest. So as much as I was so happy of what title nine had done for us, it made me realize you know, where we were at in the 60s and 70s is where so many other countries still were and that it hadn't changed. And in my naive mind at a very young, early 20s age, I thought, well, of course, everybody would. I mean, hello, like female women getting the same opportunities men is like a duh. Like, why wouldn't we do this? And it was such a kind of really a slap in the face of like, Jess, like this isn't the way it is. And even in the U.S., like how much we needed to still grow, but globally, more importantly, how we needed to push equality so that more women were able to get the same opportunities that we had. Give me the sort of the Ferris wheel of softball in the Olympics. Uh, it's been up, it's been down, it's been in, it's been out. Why is that? I, I know it's because not enough nations play it, but why did they play it before and they don't play it now or why it's out now, right? Uh, yeah. So it actually had nothing to do with how many played because there are a lot that do. It was more baseball, um, which was really frustrating. So we were tied in with baseball. And, you know, at the time of the vote, which I think was 2005, um, when they decided to eliminate baseball and softball, the number, the two reasons were, you know, steroid use, which had been a big thing in the mid to late nineties for baseball. We've never had a positive drug test in the history of our sport ever. <laughs> So to have that thrown in at us was clearly a bash to baseball, but had nothing to do with us. And the second was not sending your best athletes, which 
in, you know, baseball, major league baseball does not pause their season. Like we see with NHL and so many other professional leagues so that they can play in the Olympics. So major league baseball, you know, the best athletes are still competing in the league and not in the Olympics for us, clearly like we're sending our best athletes. There isn't another option. So that was really frustrating to be but honest. Why were they tied together? Why didn't people at the time say you can't, you can't compare these two sports? Honestly, you know, they wanted to add three more sports. And so when they wanted to get rid of baseball, they could really get rid of two and one. So they could get rid of softball, which we were just kind of thrown in with them. Um, and you have to understand, too, the International Olympic Committee is predominantly European. And so they wanted more sports where they were more dominant in because the U.S. had been so successful in so many sports. Baseball and softball is not a popular sport in Europe. And so at that time, they added rugby and golf. So those were the two sports they wanted in. You had to get two sports to get out. And so if we were going to, in their minds, we're getting rid of baseball. Here's the sister to the same sport. We'll go ahead and add that with them. And and it was a tie vote. It was actually 50 to 50 um, was the tie. Jim Easton of Easton Sports, who was our representative for the U.S., left the room because he felt like it was a conflict of interest. Um, had he stayed in the room to vote, we would still be in. Oh, my God. But move it, move it forward. What can you do or what can be done to get softball back for the games in L.A.? which will be absurd if their softball is not there. Yeah. And honestly, it's, it's on the chopping block, which I was just hearing about because there's a lot of sports that LA wants to add and induce. Um, I, I don't know the list of sports, but every Olympics, they get an opportunity to kind of add new sports. And even though softball and baseball has been a part of our pastime, um, there is a chance that actually it might not be in. Like you might get beat out by like gaming. Yeah. Like something that's not, and I don't know, I know breakdancing and there's like, I don't know, there's all kinds of new and and I'm not honestly knocking anything else. It's more of like, this is such an Olympic, like, especially at softball, it's the pinnacle. We don't have a bigger stage. Um, There is no professional softball that's bigger than the Olympics. We have it, but it's not something that you see like the women's college world series. So, um, I think too, just globally, what it does for the sport. Obviously, I'm biased, but I think we can't assume that it's going to be in LA. We need to really continue to push for it and be loud. Yeah, be loud. Is um, you made the transition to television? Um, did you tell me what the adjustments were for you when you went into the booth? Um, you know, I think just the fact that I was I was still playing, so I was still an Olympic athlete, and it was, you know, and I don't know how it was for you, but it was literally like, okay you're going to go, we're going to put a headset on you. We need, you know, softball coverage was growing and they just needed people. Um, so I remember my first game, like you don't really get coached up too much. (laughs) I don't really tell you. And you make your mistakes in front of people. Well, and that's, I think that's where you had it even harder because for us, we're not on camera very often. So being my, my introduction to television was, you know, being an analyst, you know, we come on for the open and then you don't really see us for the rest of the game. So most of our talking, I can have those mess up moments and, you know, be like, <laughs> like no one can see me. Um, you know, and I have someone st- sitting right next to me too, that if like I freeze or something, they can pick me up. Um, but I do remember my first game, my producer talking to me in my headset and, you know, you don't know what the box in front of you, so you don't know anything. <laughs> and so I'm like talking and they, you know, we're probably like, okay, 10 seconds, we're going to hit a commercial. And I was like, 
oh, what? We're going to hit like literally talk <laughs> back course. to my producer on air because I thought <laughs> everyone could hear him. If I can hear him. Was it ever for you that uh, we're judged so harshly and we were ever since women started doing this, having been there at the beginning myself, that I, my personality, I didn't let it come out for a while. Were you ever mindful of, I cannot really let my true, I don't know if you had a quirkiness or or humor or something. Were you ever mindful of guarding that in the beginning? Oh, for sure. I mean, just, I think just doubting everything that came out of my mouth. <laughs> like, And it's unfortunate because one of the biggest advices I give to anyone in television is be you, <laughs> you know, stick to who you are because people want relatable, you know, they want to feel like they, they know you, but it's really hard when there's a lot of negativity or hatred or, you know, just like anything, if you were to walk into a room of a hundred people and you knew that like even 50 of them were going to throw things at you and say bad things, like, would you talk for me? Like, no, I would walk in and just be like, try to sneak into the corner and And I had to really, you know, learn that like, I'm here for a reason because of who I am and not trying to be something else or listening to what they want me to be. And I am a woman, (laughs) you know, this is, this is something that I, you know, am proud of and the things that I think about and want to ask questions about, or am curious about, I think other women are too. And I need to represent that and not try to stick to some blueprint of every man that came before me. But you do have an instinct. Uh, I remember watching Arietta's uh, no hitter. And you know what you did at the very end of that when that when he when the game ended, you laid out. And that's that's an instinct of knowing what the moment is, what the scene is, maybe because you've played the game at such a high level. But uh, do you remember thinking to yourself, um, I know how to handle this or it was just instinct? Yeah, I think it had helped that I'd, I'd covered the Women's College World Series and just understanding big moments. And, and honestly, watching big moments, right? Like we all do. You don't want to hear people telling you about it. You want to feel it, right? Like this is history. Jake Arrieta is still the first and only no-hitter in 30 years of Sunday Night Baseball. It's his show. So, and the crowd and the, like all of that, like to me, like the only person that doesn't lay out is the director. Like. They, they're cutting shots. Like this is when he or she shines, where it's their job to literally be like showing us the fields, right? Because you're not there. You're watching this on television. There's nothing I can say in that moment. Um, and I know that just from watching and being in them and like playing in them, like, you know, I don't want someone's voice to come over the moment and tell me everything I'm seeing. You want to feel it. So that's But you know, like, that is such a... Um... I don't know, you were mature beyond your years, probably because you were a player at such a high level. But I mean, I did World Series with Al Michaels and Dick Stockton and, you know, a lot of these these people at a very high level. Can you tell me what that was like? Because I'm so curious, like being able to do the World Series and like going back to, you know, being with with some of the best, calling the best. They just um, I'll tell you, Al Michaels, I, I mean, I did Monday Night Football with him for years, the World Series. I did the Triple Crown with him. He never lets a broadcast hang. He always knows where it's going. He always makes everybody comfortable. He's so in control. He's like just the the great pitcher. You know, he's like Bob Gibson on the mound. He he does everything yeah. uh, that makes everybody else better, which they all do. All the good ones. I mean, Jim Nance does the same thing. I did twenty five Final Fours with him. There, those are people that um, 
they, a little bit of what you were saying before about yourself. It's like, um, you get the job, so do the job. And, and you have to trust that. And that's why you were on a Sunday night baseball, major league baseball, the women's, the college world series is because you, you have the gift of it. You have the experience and you have the knowledge, the vocabulary, you do have it all. And, um, I love seeing that you accept that now. Yeah. They assigned me the job. I got the job. I'll do the job, which is the same for Holly Rowe and Beth Mowens. I mean, you have an, you know, spectacular crew there that, yeah. that you work with, but, um, tell me this, were you thinking, um, you're doing major league baseball. It's, you know, uh, still very, it was, weren't you the first maybe to do uh, nationally broadcast games? I mean, I've been friends with Susan Waldman for four decades, but for a nationally broadcast game, there you were, you were the first and, you know, you can only, only one person can be the first. Uh, did you have a sense of, um, yes, I'm, I'm clearing this hurdle? Oh, you know, it's funny because I had been on the sidelines doing analyst work prior to that. And that to me was so awesome and so much fun. And I pushed for that instead of, you know, being sideline reporter asked, can I be an analyst? And it was really my boss that was like, well, if you're going to do that, let's move you to the booth. So I'd, I'd been doing, on, you know, for a year, on, you know, breaking down my trout swing, doing all the things, but it was on the sideline. And it's amazing, Wesley, and you get this, like a 50-yard geographical difference. Like ultimately, I was moving from the field to the booth. And I guess I, I was naive to just like, I, I'd already been doing that. And so in my head, I'm like, I'm still breaking down swings. I'm still doing the same thing. But oh, my goodness. Once I was up there, and obviously you're on more and you're in the booth and the whole thing, I, I guess I was blown away by the reaction. And and part of it was like the very first game I had was prior to that Sunday night, Jake Arrieta game. I'd done a game four days before that on a Monday ESPN two, nobody was watching and it wasn't a big deal. Like no one really knew. I think it ran on sports center the next day, but like even Dave O'Brien, who I was working with in the middle of the game was like, Hey, like people are tweeting that like, there hadn't been a woman. Is this your first time? Like he hadn't even realized. And we were like halfway through the game. Um, so it wasn't until that Sunday night baseball game that because there was a no hitter, so many people were watching, they heard a woman's voice for the first time and it just really blew people away. And I just, in my head was like, but this should have been done 20 years ago. And even, and it had, it, there's so many women that have done it before me that it just, I always thought that this is just where we're at. I didn't realize so many people were unprepared for it. You are such, um, you know, Shakespeare's man in full. You're actually a woman in full. I mean, there don't you have like a master's from Stanford or something ridiculous like that? Yeah, yeah. I I stayed and got my master's degree. Um, but yeah, no, I think the educational part, uh, the student athlete, when I go back to that was was real for me. And yeah. shoot, I was able to get a scholarship to get my master's um, as long as I started it in my undergrad. And so my fourth year, I started my master's degree so that I continue it my fifth year. And then I was able to train for the Olympics and still have that degree. And I mean, shoot, I'd go back and get a PhD. <laughs> I had the time. I loved, I loved school. I mean, college was awesome. You're so delightful because you are so well-rounded. You're so accomplished. Um, one last thing. I don't know. I, I probably should know this by now, but what was your walk-up song and what would you have had it? I don't know if they had them when you played, but what would be your walk-up song? 
um, I did a lot of ACDC, um, old school, like rock for sure. Um, and, but one of my favorites was, um, all right now by free, because that's Stanford's fight song. We're the, one of the only schools that has a classic rock song as our fight song. So that would get me pretty pumped. I do remember playing professionally. I did a lot of Latin music just to kind of salsa dance my way into the batter's box. So I mixed it up anything from Bon Scott to all right now to some Latina get after it. Well, I want you to have, um, do you take suggestions ever? Because there are going to be things you're going to have to walk up, like walk up on a stage. I want you to have this girl's on fire. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I have a whole playlist of girl like Lizzo um, and Beyonce. Throw in some Beyonce, too, for sure. Oh, my God. And I mean, you know, when you look at those early videos, the way she danced. Oh, my God. She was like a. Yes. Talk about on fire. <laughs> Um, all right, love. I just I so enjoyed being with you. I hope this is our first of many. I can't believe that yes. you found time in the middle of the no, world series. I'm in, I'm in awe. Thank you so much. I've looked up to you and thank you for everything that you've done. Honestly, I would not be here today if it wasn't for you. And and honestly, I hear your name all the time of like what how great you were at your job. So not even so much like paving the way, which is everything. But the fact that you're really good allows us and many more because that's what we got to do. We, we can't just be here. We got to be good at it. So this door never, ever gets closed again. And that was my conversation with Jessica Mendoza. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer. Marissa Rivas is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.